What in the world could go wrong on a day like that? A little boy, a dog, a summer day, the sun's in the sky, clouds, too young to even be in school yet, and you got the whole day just playing in the yard. That particular yard had about maybe 20 yards of distance between the house and a gravel road, and the little boy knew, it wasn't this little boy, the little boy we're talking about is a whole lot cuter than this little boy, the little boy knew that he wasn't supposed to go anywhere near that gravel road, and he didn't really want to go anywhere near that gravel road, because there were some big cars that traveled down that gravel road, and so... He didn't want to go there, and his parents gave him a lot of incentive not to go there. That was kind of the uncrossable barrier. You don't go anywhere. In fact, you don't need to be playing in the front yard. There were 10 acres to play on. About seven or eight, I guess, were farmed by a neighbor, but that still left some acreage to to mess with, and the days would come when some of that acreage would be used for wiffle ball and basketball and various things. But just the yard, the backyard, was big enough for that little boy until this dog showed up. It wasn't his dog. It's a dog he'd never seen before. And he began to be intrigued by that dog he hadn't seen before. And he had so much fun with that dog. He wrestled around with it and played with it and petted it and followed it followed it from the backyard to the front yard. I don't know if he ever realized he didn't really need to be in the front yard, and that's kind of foreign territory to him, but he was in the front yard. And up until today, he had never really thought about going across that gravel road. Wasn't anything over there too enticing. It's just another farm field that some guy up the road farmed, and then beyond the farm field, there were, there were some woods that, just to be frank about it, to a little guy, looked pretty scary. He didn't have any reason to be intrigued by that, but before he knew it, he was across that gravel road. He was across the field. And he was in those woods. And he was around or in the middle of a bunch of bushes and thorns and various things and he didn't see any really way out of that and he didn't care if he got out of it or not until he realized his new friend was gone. The dog had found something more exciting to do and had gone off into another adventure. And for the first time in his life, this little boy had a feeling that he had never, ever had before. The same kind of feeling that probably that young lady in that picture had when she realized that she was lost. And that picture almost looks like downtown compared to what that little boy found himself in. He learned some things later after his experience. You see, he was just across the road 
from his house. But he might as well have been a million miles away. He had no idea where he was. Totally, absolutely, 100% lost. The sweetest sound that little boy ever heard was the sound of his father's voice calling his name. And kind of over a hill, there came his dad and two or three other guys. I don't know if he thought whether or not he was going to get punished when he got home or not, but he didn't really care. All he could think about was he wanted to go home. And he found out later that those two or three fellows he saw with his dad, they weren't the only people looking for him. Because his mom and dad loved him a whole lot, they got the word out that their little boy was lost. And neighbors from around the area, a lot of neighbors were looking in those woods for that little boy. He lived pretty close to an airport, a little small municipal airport. And he found out later that some guy had volunteered to take his little single engine plane up and fly around and see if he could find any signs of that little boy that was lost. He learned that in that woods, there was an abandoned well. There were sticks across the top of the well. There were limbs across the top of the well. There were leaves across the top of the well. And so you really couldn't tell that a well was even there. But those men who looked for that little boy told him later, and his mother told him later, they could tell that your footsteps went really close to that well. And if you'd stepped on some of those twigs or stepped through some of those leaves, nobody might have ever found you ever again. He was lost. And he had a sinking feeling in his stomach. It doesn't feel real good when you're lost. And you have no idea where you are, how to get out of where you are, and somebody has led you into something that you have no idea how to get out of, and they've left you there at your own devices, and you have no idea where to go. Depending on the Bible you have, there are two or three different occasions when Jesus said, my mission, you know, we're talking this week about why He came, why He said He came. I've come to, I have come to save the lost. I don't know what translation you have. And like I said, I guess it was Sunday, I'm not a translation Nazi, and so I'm not going to get into that. But there are two of those places, two of the three you find it in some Bibles, that there's some discrepancy about, there's some disagreement about. One of them is Matthew chapter 18, and the Bible I'm using up here has no verse 11. They, they practice the new math in Matthew chapter 18. They go straight from 10 to 12 because in some of the manuscripts, there is no verse 11 that says the Son of Man has come to save the lost. The second one is in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, the apostles are involved in a situation with Jesus and are having a discussion with Him. And my Bible has the heading, 
A Samaritan village rejects Jesus. And that passage starts with verse 51. And James and John in verse 54 say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And that's all the ESV has. Some translations add something like this. You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man came not to destroy people's lives, but to save them. There's no dispute. There's no doubt. There's no controversy about Luke chapter 19. Will you turn there with me? It doesn't matter who you read, what you read, what Bible professor you're talking to, Luke 19 ought to be in our Bibles. It's a very familiar story. Luke chapter 19, it says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was of small stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried, came down, received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. Here we go again, as we talked about some other lessons. He's gone to be in the guest of a man who is a sinner. Not talking to him, talking to somebody else. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. If I defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said, Today has salvation, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. If we include the other two passages back in the text, if they are genuine, if they ought to be there, there is something in Luke 19 that's not in either one of them. Both of the others say the Son of Man has come to save the lost, or I have come to save the lost. In Luke chapter 19, again, the passage where there is no doubt, the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. It's a search and rescue mission. Those of us who wear the name of Christ, those of us who call ourselves Christians, those of us who say we are part of the body of Christ, I think we need to take to heart what Jesus said, that we are here, that He was here, and that we need to be about seeking and saving the lost. Donna and I plan to travel back to Paducah Friday. And Saturday we have a young man coming down from the St. Louis area, Illinois side of the St. Louis area. He's a very effective personal worker. 
And so we've invited him to come and talk to us about personal evangelism and the success he's having and what he's doing. And so he's going to be talking to us Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon, part of the afternoon, and then also speaking to us Sunday. I don't know what he's going to say. The other man that works with me, the other preacher there, knows him because he spent two years as an uh, intern in that area and knew the fellow and knows about his work. And so he has some idea about what this man's going to tell us. Here's what, I don't, here's what I don't think he's going to tell us. He's not going to say, Central, here's the way to win the loss to Jesus. You stay in your houses and you stay in your church buildings and you put out a fancy sign and you put out flyers and you do different things and you announce your office hours for just the two men who are paid to do this. And if somebody wants to learn the truth, they can come by between 8 and 5, Monday through Friday. And if you can work them into your schedule, you'll sit down and study God's Word with them. I've got a pretty good idea He's not going to tell us that. I've got a pretty good idea He's going to have something to say about us seeking and saving the lost. When I grew up in Metropolis, Illinois, Donna lived on 3rd Street. There was her house, her grandmother's house on the corner, and across the street was the meeting place of a denominational group, the same denomination that I came out of. It wasn't where I worshipped, but the same, same group. And they had a, a bus that drove all over Metropolis. I still remember it was a blue bus with white lettering. Now, it wasn't beautiful Kentucky blue, but it was a blue bus, kind of a drab. Can there be a drab blue? I don't know. Kind of a drab blue, and it had white lettering. It had the name of the church on the side and on the back, and either on the side or the back, I can't remember where it was, maybe both places, it said, so-and-so Baptist church, the church with Acts 20-20 vision. I didn't know what Acts 20-20 vision meant. I didn't know what 2020 vision was, except when I got a little older and I had to go to the eye doctor, and the eye doctor told me you need some glasses because you don't have 2020 vision anymore. I found out what it says. You know what it says, don't you? Acts 20 is where Paul is talking to those elders from Ephesus. He's meeting them at Miletus, and he's talking to them about his work with them for all those years and, and giving them some advice some instructions, a better word. After my departing, grievous wolves will come in, not sparing the flock, and you need to make sure that you keep the flock going in the right direction. When he's talking about his work, he says, I kept back, in Acts 20, 20, I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but I have taught you both publicly and from house to house. It's what he said he did. He taught publicly and from house to house. And I'm thinking, 
here's a group that wears a name you can't find in the New Testament for God's people. Here is a group that's not organized the way the New Testament church should be organized. Here is a group that does not worship God the way the New Testament says that we ought to worship God. Here is a group that does not teach the plan of salvation as it's found in the New Testament. Like I said, I've been there, done that. I know what they taught me. I don't know what they've taught other people who were in that group, but I know what they taught me. They taught me that I needed to accept Christ as my personal Savior and or that I needed to pray the sinner's prayer. And they taught me that when I had done that, I needed to respond to the invitation and I needed to make this confession. I want you to listen to what I was taught. I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes in this room. I'm just talking about me, okay? And like I told you Sunday, I'm talking to me, but I'm talking about me right now. Here's the confession I was taught to make. I believe that God, for Christ's sake, has pardoned me of my sins. That's what I was told to say. You know what that's saying? It's saying I'm a Christian. I believe that God, for Christ's sake, has, past tense, pardoned me of my sins. When? When I accepted Jesus into my heart. When I prayed the sinner's prayer or did whatever else they told me to do. You mean they never baptized you? Oh yeah. Yeah, they baptized me. Sometime later, when they had enough people together to have a a special baptismal service, they, they baptized me. But you see, it was important, but it wasn't necessary. It was important for me to follow the example of Jesus. It was, they said, an outward sign of an inward experience that I had already had. But it was not necessary for my salvation. That's what they taught me. So I can do it sometime later. I would have to be like that Philippian jailer and do it in the middle of the night or those people on the day of Pentecost that did it right then or any of those people in the New Testament. I want you to think that through a little bit. There is not a preacher in Haleville, Alabama who will deny this. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know why they won't deny that? It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. That's why they won't deny that. If I'm in Christ, I'm a new creature. The rub comes with how do you get into Christ? Where does that new life begin? Well, it begins when you ask Jesus into your heart. And you start your new life. Is that right? Romans chapter 6 talks about being baptized into His death and raised from that watery grave of baptism to walk in 
newness of life. If what I was told a long time ago is true, here's how it works. I became a new creature on whatever day it was. And a few weeks, a few months later, they took that brand new creature and buried him. That didn't make any sense. What makes sense is, I died my old life, I was buried, and I rose from that grave of baptism to walk in what Paul says, what the Holy Spirit says through Paul in Romans chapter 6 is newness of life. He also writes in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 that we're baptized into Christ. So here's this group. Here's this group that's got the wrong plan of salvation, the wrong worship, the wrong organization, and they are the ones who have on their bus we are the people with Acts 20-20 vision. Can I step on some toes? i got long toes, long feet. I'm going to step on some toes back in Paducah. The central church of Christ in Paducah, Kentucky ought to be the church in Paducah with Acts 20-20 vision. Not some group that wears another name it has another organization, another plan of salvation, everything else. The Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama ought to be the church with Acts 2020 vision. The church that teaches publicly and from house to house. Why? Why? And why don't we do it? I wonder sometimes if we ask ourselves the question, you hear these things all the time. Back in the first century, man, the church just grew and grew and grew and you go from adding to multiplying and all kinds of things. And then back in the the 50s in our country, man, the church was growing. And so you wonder now, why aren't we growing like we did back in the 50s or back in the first century or whatever? And here are some of the answers. we got all these isms going on. All the way from anti-ism to liberalism and everything in between. Some new idea comes along and you attach the word ism to it and it's kind of a it's kind of like it's kind of like the phrase gate. Ever since Watergate, every scandal is a gate of some kind. Some guy takes some air out of a football and it's deflate gate. Well, the same thing happens with ism. You got this guy teaching this and this guy teaching that, and so we're all worried about the isms, and that's why we're not growing. Or it may be, whoa, I didn't know they all showed up. It may be just some error. We're not as knowledgeable, and we don't stand for the truth. We don't do what we talked about very briefly last night, content earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It may be. Maybe worldliness. I don't like to not follow people on Facebook. I think I've already told you this. There are some young people where I preach that I've unfollowed because I've seen way too much of them. Not seeing them too often, but seeing too much of them. Or they got other things to do, them and the adults, besides worshiping and serving God and it's all about worldliness. Maybe they're just kind of indifferent. They just kind of go through the motions and they, they sit there. Maybe, 
Maybe preachers and elders spend a lot of time spinning their wheels because of people who just flat aren't committed. Just not going to do anything for the cause of Christ. You may have heard the story about the, the fellow that was having a conversation with a friend of his. And he said, you know, the two biggest problems in the Lord's church today, the two biggest ones are ignorance and apathy. And the guy said, well, I didn't know that, but I don't care. Now, we laugh at that, but I wonder if it's all that funny that the two biggest problems are ignorance of the Bible and just, I don't care. I used to work with a fellow over in Dexter, Missouri. He was a full-time elder. And he used to have an expression. He, he was from, uh, not to say he was from Alabama originally. He was from Mississippi originally. And I don't know if it's a Mississippi phrase or something he picked up there or in Dexter or wherever, but he would talk about some of the people that we worshiped with and tried to encourage. We hoped they'd be more involved. And he said, you know, we got a whole bunch of people. And here was his expression. They wouldn't walk across the road to see an ant eat a bale of hay. I don't know what he meant by that exactly, except you couldn't do anything to excite people. They just didn't care. They're just indifferent. Let me suggest three things that might keep me, us, from helping the Lord's church grow in Haleyville or Paducah or wherever we happen to be from. Maybe I don't know what it feels like to be lost. I've never had the experience spiritually that that little boy had in those woods. I don't know what it feels like to be lost. Years ago, before I became a preacher full time, there was a man in our hometown who was probably in his 40s. He and I did a little talking and he had some questions and he had some concerns and various things and He was one of those people, like many of us, many of you who were brought up in the church, and at about age, I don't know, 40, 45, whatever he was, he was baptized. He had been baptized when he was 13 or 14 or somewhere back in there. Here's what the man told me. And if I don't have it word for word, I'm pretty close. He said, Jim, when I was baptized back there, I was inducted into the family religion. This time, I'm being baptized for the remission of my sins. Somewhere between 13 or 14 and 40-something, he figured out that he was lost. And he wanted to make that right. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 talks about us being delivered from the power of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son, in whom we have forgiveness through His blood, remission through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. From darkness to light. Can you get more stark than that? Yes, you can. Paul, the same author, same penman, in Ephesians chapter 1 talks about, or chapter 2 talks about people who were made alive who were dead. Dead lost in trespasses and sin. And now, you're alive. Maybe that's why 
I'm not teaching publicly and from house to house. Maybe I don't think people outside of Christ are lost. Man, he's a good neighbor. She's a real good friend of mine. I've never had a co-worker or a classmate or a buddy like him or like her. I I can't believe that a person like that could really be lost. Have you read about Cornelius lately? Have you read about him in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11? A devout man. One who feared God with all his house. Gave much alms to the people. Prayed to God always. You don't get much gooder than that. Cornelius was a good man. And in Acts chapter 11, you check me out on this, when Peter's kind of reporting in on what happened, he said, I had to tell him words whereby he and his household would be saved. Cornelius was lost. And Peter knew that Cornelius was lost, and he had to get the message to him. Or maybe the problem is, I don't think I'll be lost if I don't seek and save. When was the Great Commission revoked? Can you tell me? I don't think it was. When we worked for Fried Hardeman, I think somebody in one of the introductions this week said that we moved to Paducah in 1996. I think Adam said something about this last night. And we were working for Fried Hardeman up in that area, and there was a preacher in that area at that time that I think he had about three sermons, and I heard them all about ten times. But anyway, I heard him make this exp- use this expression more than once. I want you to think about it. The Great Commission as recorded in Matthew chapter 28. Go, teach, baptize, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you, the first of which is go, teach, baptize, Teach all things whatsoever I commanded you. The first of which is, are you getting the point? When, when was that revoked? When did the Lord ever come back and say, okay, you don't have to do that anymore? You see, the key is, we, like Jesus, need to be around people. He was at the house of this man. He didn't wait in the office somewhere for this man to come by and make an appointment and see him and spend time with him and, and do various things. You'll find Jesus, one of, the, one of the I am come statements that he talks about that we're not going to be talking about this week was the Son of Man came eating and drinking. That means he was with people. He associated with people. They, they knew who he was. And they were willing to spend some time with him. How many people did you run into today? I don't like to ask this question because I know the answer in my life every day and I know how bad a job I do at this. How many people did Jim Fawn run into today and every day of his life who are not Christians? Just going to the store, going to a restaurant, talking to your neighbors, How many times, how many people did I run into that I knew are not members of the Lord's church and what did I do about it? I don't like the answer to that question. Maybe you got a better answer than I do in your life, but sometimes 
I don't like the answer. That little boy that followed that dog across the road way back all those years ago had no idea at that time when his dad found him and they brought him home and because they loved him and people cared enough about him that they brought him home. He had no idea that one day he would find out that girls didn't have cooties after all. And he started dating a few of those weird looking people. And the way his wife tells it is he dated all of my friends before he ever dated me. The way he tells it is I was working myself up to you. He had no idea that that young lady would be a member of the Lord's church. He'd never heard of the church of Christ. And if he had, it was all kind of derision. Those people think this and those people think that and they used to be called Campbellites and you name it. He had no idea that she would lovingly, carefully, patiently stand her ground and keep influencing him and teaching him. And one night, he did something that he could never have dreamed in a million years he would do. He had that same feeling in the pit of his stomach he had when he was three or four or five years old. He wasn't lost in the woods. He was lost. It wasn't that he had been taught wrong religiously and you need to change a few beliefs. No, he finally figured out he was lost. And he walked down an aisle, not like this, it was more of a shotgun type building. There was a man preaching in a gospel meeting who had been the local preacher in that church of Christ a few years earlier. Walked down the aisle, the man who was now the local preacher baptized that young man into Christ. Well, he'd been baptized before because he already was a Christian, but he knew that wasn't right. He was lost. He needed to do something about that. And a man named Robert M. Waller, who at that time was probably in his 50s, baptized that young man who was about 23, 24 years old, into Christ. And he had no idea that 40 years later, the man he had baptized into Christ would take that picture. He's now in his mid-90s. And a couple of years ago at the Freed Hardeman Lectures, I introduced Brother Waller to Adam. And as they were standing there talking, I took a picture. And I didn't know Turner was even in the background until I saw the picture later. If, that had been a, if it had been a staged picture, Mary Carroll would be in it too. I just wanted a picture of the man who baptized me into Christ and a young man who writes about a legacy of faith. And it occurred to me that 
behind the camera and in the picture, there are three generations. You can start your own legacy of faith this evening. If you're not a Christian, the most important thing you can do is to not leave this building until you do what that little boy did when he became a young man and let somebody baptize you into Christ. If you are a Christian and you're not living like a Christian, please, please make it right. Right now as we stand and sing a song of encouragement.